Hi, and welcome to the VJ Hemong podcast. Today, we bring you the latest updates on multiple myeloma treatments. We are joined by three myeloma experts who debate the critical data presented at ASH 2020, including updates on the management of transplant-eligible patients, the evolution of induction therapy, as well as updates in targeted and cellular therapies for myeloma. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending where you are, and welcome to this uh, well roundtable discussion organized by Video Journal of Hematology Oncology. My name is Maribi Mateos from Salamanca, Spain, and I would like to welcome to Tom Martin and Nina Sa both from the University of San Francisco in California, because they will be joining with me today this discussion. We will have the opportunity to discuss about well, the news we have just heard at us meeting. So welcome, Tom and Nina. And uh, let's go to, to start. And uh, first, I would like to discuss with you about the newly diagnosed myeloma patients. And if we focus on the transplant-eligible population, uh, the hot topic or the debate about the possibility of skipping autologous stem cell transplantation in the Afro setting has been a continuous topic of debate. And during this answer, we had the opportunity to see the update of the French study with a very long follow-up, approximately nine years and all the transplant continues being superior in terms of progression of survival. No differences has been reported in terms of overall survival. And the European Myeloma Network trial reported, by contrast, a significant benefit for transplant, even in terms of overall survival. And well, these two studies utilize the different induction regimes. And in addition, we have the fourth study with KRD or KCD as part of the induction. But again, transplant continues being superior in terms of progression-free survival with no benefit so far in overall survival. What is your opinion about the role of autologous stem cell transplantation? We have uh, to continue offering transplant in the affront setting to our patients, or do you consider that uh, some patients can potentially skip a transplant in the affront setting? Tom, do you want to start? Sure. Um, so I'm still in favor of doing autologous transplant as part of uh, upfront therapy for a couple of reasons. Uh, although the, you know, the French, the IFM study did show at eight years down the road that the overall survival was exactly the same. Patients do, I think, benefit from having a longer progression-free survival, a long interval initially of after the transplant and on maintenance, being on a really low dose of medication and having quality uh, at that point in time. There was also data from the Forte trial, and we might talk about that more, where in fact, the patients who got KRD for AIDS transplant did do better in terms of patients who got KRD without transplant. So I still think there's this um, uh, overwhelming, I'd say energy inertia for us to move forward with transplant because we get a deeper remission and more patients achieve that MRD negative status and have a longer initial remission duration. So I still like it. Nina? 
Yeah, I agree with Tom that I am still in the camp of early transplant up front. I will just point out that the point of the IFM study is early versus late transplant. So this change in PFS is, or the difference in PFS reflects that. It doesn't reflect getting a transplant or not. And so the it's, it's like you have to ask the question reverse that are there patients who could delay the transplant Sure. I would tell them that their overall survival, if they choose to get the transplant later, will probably not be affected. It would only affect the PFS. But can we predict who those patients are going to be? Because just because you say someone's going to get a transplant later doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be up for getting the transplant later. Um, and of course, you have to make sure you collect the cells in advance. So because of that, I agree with Tom that earlier transplant is better. I thought this ash kind of nailed that point in. And the transplant in first in first remission is better, um, and I still offer it. I totally agree that it's a chance to get the patients to go off and get maintenance therapy and return to their normal life, which is our ultimate goal. Yeah, excellent comment, and I think that you pointed out an important comment that I think that is relevant for the audience. In the French study, approximately eighty-eight percent of the patients who did not receive a transplant up from they received it at relapse. So this is what Nina said. This is not a transplant versus not transplant. It's early versus late. And definitely this is the lack of benefit at the end in overall survival. But maybe we are going to benefit more patients if we offer them a transplant in the Afro setting. I think that this is an important message for the audience and also even for the patients that sometimes they don't want to go to autologous extensive transplantation. And at the end, well, it's a no very complicated procedure. And uh, well, I think that we have to, to offer the transplant to our patients. And let me ask you, both are working in the same institution. So uh, what is your standard of care for induction? Is the VRD? or do you prefer to utilize KRD, or do you plan to add the monoclonal antibody that I have based on a Griffin study? What is your opinion? Nina, you first right now. Well, Tom's my boss, so I wanna say what he says, but um, no problem. I, um, no, no, I, I think what I, I can say I don't yet do, I don't yet do DARA RBD up front. And the reason I don't yet, even though we were participants on the Griffin trial, is that I haven't seen the PFS and the regimen that's shown there means you have to do Daralyn for maintenance as well. So that's a lot of Dara you're committing the patient to um, if, if you don't yet know about PFS. So that that's my hesitation to do that. Um, and so I, I, I still struggle with the VRD, KRD. Endurance didn't help me at all because that trial doesn't have transplant. And as I already mentioned, it, that we do transplant. So I still use a lot of VRD. I think having seen the Forte data, I might switch to that regimen of KRD, transplant KRD, I, might, I could consider that. We always have this discussion two weeks after Ash at our group say, what are we gonna do? So I guess I'll turn it over to Tom and see what he thought. Okay, yeah, Tom. So, um, Nina and I practice very similarly. Um, in the transplant ineligible, um, I really do like the daratumumab, lenalidomide or revlimid and dexamethasone, that triplet. It's extremely well tolerated and I think the lack of worries with neuropathy is huge for patients, especially for quality of life. Now in a high risk transplant ineligible patient, I think we all still do RVD or RVD light. Um, for transplant eligible, 
I do think that we'll we'll drift to quads. We will go to Dara RVD in the future, but it's a, it's about currently being insurance um, um, approved. So we don't get approval for the drugs in, in California at the current time. So we can't do that. So probably RVD is our is our standard. Um, we do KRD because it wasn't involved in endurance in the high risk transplant eligible patients. We will do KRD as induction. Okay, so in Europe, more or less the same, and our standard of care is basically VRT. We don't have approved VRT data, but we have approved VTD plus data to Mumaba. But for us, what we are not going to do is to go back to VTD data when you are using VTD. So sometimes we ask our pharmacist in order to prescribe a VRD plus data to Mumab, and this is what I have done just in a couple of patients, but this is what we can envision we will do more and more basically in Europe in the centers in which VRD is our standard of care. And just uh, Tom previously alluded to the transplant in eligible population with the data index. I think that the results are excellent and from my point of view are the best results we have observed in a phase three clinical trial conducted in the transplant in eligible population, go to tolerability, and as you mentioned, no peripheral neuropathy. But I think that in US, many centers continue using also RVD for the transplant in eligible population. Is this correct? And uh, well, is there any explanation because insurance uh, problems or not? I think, you know, honestly, it's more practice patterns. People are used to the same, doing the same thing. We probably have had a less than 10% um, you know, use of DARA RD in the transplant ineligible. The, I do think that the, the approval of DARA by subcutaneous um, you know, administration is going to increase the use of it as frontline therapy. It just makes it a lot easier for the patient. They don't have to sit there for a few hours getting an IV uh, medication. They can get a five-minute sub-Q. I suspect in the next year or two, we're going to see a significant um, buy-in to using DARA-RD as frontline in the transplant ineligible. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I completely agree with you that the sub-Q DARA is going to increase the uptake of DARA-RD. And I also agree with you that practice patterns are hard to change. And particularly for our institution, we're a referral center. So a lot of times we see people, but we don't actually see as many transplant ineligible patients as they see in the community. And so our proportions, what we're seeing may not reflect what's actually going on in the community as far as VRD light, but DR, uh, DRD. But I have been recommending a lot of DRD uh, in this situation more lately, especially with sub-Q. Okay, perfect. And uh, now let's move on to evaluate the relapse and refractory situation. And uh, I think that the first relapses right now are challenging, at least uh, for us, because, uh, well, more patients at first relapses are basically coming from lenalidomide's continuous therapy, and the patients are basically len refractory. Today, tomorrow will be maybe LEN and or data refractory and we will have an additional problem. But today, I think that most patients with C at first relapse are LEN refractory. And uh, well, if the patients, I would say, that are anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody naive, 
Well, maybe you agree with me that the first option is to select the monoclonal antibody anti-CD38 in combination with something else. What is the best partner from your point of view for this land refractory population, including the anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody? Nina or Tom? I go well, that you want to try, try first. <laughs> Uh, well, I think that by an efficacy standpoint, I do think that daratumumab or anti-CD38 antibody and carfilzomib are probably the best data we've seen so far. The problem is that it's not necessarily the best option for the patient because of the intravenous carfilzomib that they have have to come three weeks on and one week off. A lot of these patients are still 68 years old. They have a regular life. They don't want to come to the infusion center three weeks out of four. And for those people, Dara Palm Dex is a very outpatient friendly, uh, easy thing to do. And they just come once for the subcutaneous injection every month. So from a patient tolerability standpoint, in fact, that that's easier. But, but the data that we've seen both from Candor and from Ikema, which Tom will comment on, especially the depth of response is very impressive. Tom, what is your preference? Yeah, so I completely agree with Nina. We have two really good choices. anti-CD38 antibody plus um, pomalidomide index or anti-CD38 antibody plus carfilzomib index. Those are really great study, uh, great options. You know, some people also can, most of the patients are bortezomib sensitive. So you could potentially do pomalidomide bortezomib index also. I tend not to do that really because of the neuropathy. Often they still have some neuropathy that still bothersome. And so we kind of shy away from that. But if they had no neuropathy whatsoever, that would be a reasonable regimen. Um, and I think the data, there was an abstract presented by David Siegel with Dara Palmdex's first relapse showing a PFS of you know over 30 months, which is pretty impressive. Um, and then we presented data on the um, isatuximab uh, carfilzomib index, um, where the so far at 20 months of follow-up, the median PFS has not been reached, but based on the hazard ratio of 0.53, it's probably going to be in the 30 plus month range also. And that's one to three prior. If we just focus on the first relapse, I don't know, it might be higher than 36, maybe higher than 40 months. I think it'll be a really great regimen. And Tom, let me ask you, I think that the millions question, do you have any preference or do you think that uh, is there any difference between the two monoclonal antibodies and ICD-38, daratumumab and isatuximab? Yeah, we get that question a lot um, because, you know, we've done a lot of isatuximab trials at UCSF. Um, and when we initially did the phase one of isatuximab plus carfilzomib, the premise behind that is that because isatuximab was selected uh, based on its ability to do, induce apoptosis without cross-linking, that it might partner better than carfilzomib. But both studies, the CANDOR and the IKEMA, have both showed really good you know, response rates in the one to three prior lines of therapy. And we don't have median PFS data from either one of those studies. We have to follow it more longitudinally. If there is one thing that I think stands out of, you know, with the IKEMA trial is a third of the patients did achieve MRD negativity with ESA, carfilzomib, and dexamethasone. And that's, and that's really a high level of MRD negativity in the one to three prior lines of therapy. So, 
So we'll all just have to see what comes up with the, the, those data, but it's, it's provocative that that might be a really great combination. Yeah, let me ask you another question. Do you see any role for selinexor in combination with bortezomib and dexamethasone in these uh, early relapses? I would say between one, three prior lines of therapy based on the Boston study. Um, well, I, I think that uh, selinexor is so interesting because it's just like belantamab, it's combining with these things that we're already using, and it's hard to go back to them. So exactly as Tom said, that people are not necessarily bortezomib refractory by the time they get to the and third prior lines, that is a possibility. I just don't see us picking Selenex or bortezomib dexamethasone over daratumumab, pomalidomide dex, or daracardex. And, and what I could see, uh, and based on the ASCO data from Christina Gasparetto's um, study, I could see that maybe somebody got darapalm dex in the second line, and in the third line could do Selenex or carfilzomib dexamethasone because that data looked pretty good. Um, and, and that would be something that I could see, particularly for the 17 P deletion population where they seem to have some efficacy there. So I think that's where that drug could go um, it, just because of, of, of our experience already that's good with daratumumab. Yeah, and another possibility would be just the opposite to start with KD daratumumab or KD isatuximab and to continue with POMDEX plus selinexor because, uh, well, I think that the results so far reported with this combination, I think that are quite effective. And uh, well, you know that selinexor is not approved yet in Europe, but based on the participation in clinical trials, my experience with the weekly administration of selinexor, I think that it's quite tolerable and toxicity is well managed with supportive care. And I think that the first comments we heard about, well, the poor tolerability, well, I have not seen this experience in my patient receiving selinexorgans once per week with supportive care. So maybe there is a role. And Nina, you mentioned the role on patients with the deletion 17B, something that definitely uh, we have maybe to, to investigate. Before moving to the maybe the key players of this as meeting, the cellular therapy and the BCMA targeted therapy and other targets, any thought about the agents with alkylators properties like malflufen or cyclophosphamide? Do you see any role for this type of alkylators in, in myeloma and especially in the US in which well, you usually don't like very much the alkylators. So, so um, in terms of, um, you know, melflufen or melflanflufenamide, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, I think the initial data is actually quite impressive, in fact, in these triple-class refractory patients seeing response rates over 25%. And, you know, once we do, we're talking CD38, PI plus imid up front, and then PI plus something, at, you know, second, and then imid pomalidomide plus something in third, they haven't seen an alkylator, you know, in quite a long time, maybe since transplant. I do think those patients tend to be um, alkylator sensitive. We use quite a bit of intravenous cyclophosphamide to try to salvage people at that point in time. I mean, sometimes they need to be hospitalized for that, et cetera. It would be really nice to be able to use, um, you know, the melflufen uh, product with dexamethasone to take up that space. I think there's going to be a nice niche uh, for melflufen once it gets approved uh, early next year. 
Yeah, okay, and I think that the Dr. Shevak from Canada presented excellent results adding cyclophosphamide to pomalidomide, hexamethasone plus daratumumab in the relapse and refractory situation. And at the end of the day, is a cheap drug that we can usually, well, always to utilize in order to, well, to combine with the novel combinations. And I agree with your comment about melflufen. And uh, well, we have a quite experience with melflufen uh, because of our participation in the clinical trials. And I've seen excellent responses in patients with extramedullary disease. And extramedullary disease is always a challenging situation in which sometimes we hospitalize them to receive DCEP or VDT pays complex combinations and amelflufen is uh, well requires just uh, one single administration in 30 minutes every four weeks so it can potentially replace these conventional mm -hmm. chemotherapies we used in the past for these patients and uh, now let's move on to the well third therapy or the bcma targeted therapy that uh, I think that we've seen the opportunity to well, to listen or to see a long list of uh, potential possibilities for targeting BCMA. And uh, for me, well, one of the most impressive data I've seen at ASA was uh, the median overall survival reported with BB2121. The trial published one year ago in New England Journal of Medicine and uh, for me, it has been quite surprised, but in a positive way, to see how, in spite of the median progression of survival was around nine months, the benefit in overall survival is almost three years. And this puts in context how this third therapy is covering really the unmet medical need we had in the triple drug class refractory patients for which the overall survival was not superior to nine months. Nina, do you want to comment something about that and about, well, the next generation of BB2121, 212127, and so on to improve the efficacy? Yeah, I also was impressed with the 34 months that they had from the 401 study, understanding that's a phase one study, which is pretty unprecedented. They had median, I think, seven prior lines of treatment. So that, that's a big deal that they were able to show that overall survival. We know that people went on to other treatments after the CAR-T when they progressed, but usually those people, we know already those people were very difficult to treat to begin with. So that was very surprising and impressive data. I think what we saw subsequent to that, all the CAR-Ts in the phase two, Idacel, uh, which was already presented uh, last year at ASCO, but, or this past ASCO, and then the Carditude, which really just blew it out of the water, uh, you know, greater than 95% response rate, just really deep responses. And what looks like at the 12 month that they're having 77% of people still maintaining their response, that's what it looks like. So it looks like they're going to beat Idacel, uh, maybe for the PFS. And that's what we're really looking for. And, and everything else, the new generations of things, the, the BB2127, the Allogene, the Poseida, all of this, it's not even comparable right now because we don't have phase two and we don't have the long-term data. And it's really hard to compare the two, uh, except for just looking at the differences in sciences and toxicity. Yeah, of course, it is not possible to, <laughs> to establish cross-trial comparison. As I think that from my point of view, they are covering the unmet medical need. Well, if we have seen a list, a, a list of 
different possibilities with CAR-Ts. I think that uh, the list of uh, BCMA-targeted therapies through T-cell engagers has been even longer than for CAR-Ts. Tom, uh, I don't know if you are able to pick up just one of them, or do you consider that all of them are similar or comparable? It's true that the efficacy is great and we don't have much more data, but do you want to comment on what is your opinion? How do you see the role of T-cell engagers, especially in the context of the CAR-Ts? In the clinical practice, maybe in the near future when these approaches are approved. Yeah, so I think from a you know kind of a high standpoint, looking down at you know all these therapeutics that we have, CAR T cells are certainly going to be available and going to be accessible by the lowest or the smallest fraction of patients because they still have one of the seventy centers in the U.S. here and requires significant social support. So it's going to be less, I think, less than half of the patients myeloma that are truly going to be CAR eligible. Whereas these other drugs like the, the cell engagers and also belantamab, we should talk about that for a second too, that those are off the shelf products that are going to be able to be given in the community and are going to be, um, you know, used much more uh, across the country and in many more patients. I think the T cell engagers the majority of patients are going to be eligible for that. I think 90 plus percent of patients are going to be eligible for T-cell engagers. I was really impressed by two things. One, how many patients have already been enrolled in T-cell engager trials across the world. It's pretty amazing. Um, and, you know, that we have BCMA targeted T-cell uh, engagers and probably six or seven were presented at ASH all with response rates between, you know, 60 and 80% in this relapse refractory, uh, you know, group of patients, amazing. But we also have the second point, we have T-cell engagers now for other targets, other surface targets that look as good. So we have a target GPRC5D that's also expressed on, um, on myeloma cells and in lymphoid tissue that might actually have some expression on skin too. They saw some minor rashes, nothing really off target that's too worrisome. And then the SCRH5, um, which is a receptor that's expressed lit literally just on beast. Um, and this early phase one study also showed at the, what's gonna be probably the recommended phase two dose response rates over 60%, pretty amazing. These drugs, like, like CAR-Ts, have CRS associated with them, but with step-up dosing, um, starting low and going higher, this is very manageable um, and, and much less lower um, um, neurotoxicity. So the T-cell engagers, I think, uh, are going to be a huge gain and are going to move from relapse refractory to early relapse and even to frontline-based therapy, maybe even maintenance. There's many places we're going to want to use these. Yeah, and uh, well, in addition, just one comment because uh, both talketamab targeting GPRC5D or the diesel engager targeting FCRH5 included the patients already exposed to BCMA targeted therapy and they responded. So they opened the door definitely to plan. I don't know what is going to be the optimal sequencing of therapy because, uh, well, it is difficult to, to envision right now, but definitely I think that the situation is good. And uh, 
What is your opinion about the antibody drug conjugate that's targeting also BCMA? How do you position this antibody drug conjugated in the setting of T-cell engagers that are also off-the-shelf drugs and CAR-Ts? Yeah, I, I, I liked the data about the MEDI-2228 because it was an antibody drug conjugate against BCMA and it had like 60% overall response rate. Now their population was similar to the DREAM2 population. So yeah. it looks like the overall response rate a little better than the belantamab, which was a 30% response rate. They did have photophobia, which I don't know exactly what that means to turn besides keratop, yeah. you know, how to compare the quality of life signal uh, with those two things. But I think having any issue with your eye is tough and having CRS once is not that tough. So I would prefer the BCMA bites over the ADCs right now. Tom, what is your opinion? Well, the nice thing is, is we have approval for belantamab in the U.S., mm -hmm. right? So we, you know, we have this drug that can be used in triple class refractory patients. And I've been actually quite surprised on, again, some patients with extra medullary disease that have responded, some patients that I had thought had very aggressive disease that have responded to belantamab. I was also impressed at ASH on a presentation by Suzanne Trudell, who presented the combination of belantamab um, with pomalidomide and dexamethasone. And she tried some alternate dosing um, schemas, including split dosing and giving it every four weeks. And when she gave it every four weeks at the 2.5 milligrams per kilogram, the response rate of palm dex was 100%. Uh, and, you know, a small population, but still 100% is 100%. That was pretty impressive. Now, there still was keratopathy. When they decreased the dose to 1.9, approximately kil uh, milligrams per kilogram, you know, the response rate dropped a little bit. It was over 80%, but the, the ocular toxicity levels dropped a fair number. You know, I do think we're going to figure out how to dose this medicine. I think it's going to um, certainly have a role, especially in triple class refractory. And if it partners nice with some of these other antimyeloma drugs, um, you know, at an optimized uh, dosing level, I think it's going to get some, some um, um, use, in the U especially in the U.S., yeah, no, the same in Europe, and Belantamab has been also approved in Europe as single agent. And the results of the DREAM2 study are good data, but from my point of view, it's just the starting point. I think that the antibody drug conjugated are going to be easily combined with POMDEX, as you mentioned, and the results presented by Susan Trudel were excellent, as well as with proteasome inhibitors. And uh, well, the clinical development plan is uh, well is moving rapidly to early lines of therapy and even to the Afron setting. The main problem, from my point of view, is to select the appropriate dose, the appropriate schedule, because uh, well, it's true that some patients had to discontinue and the response is maintained. So this can allow us maybe to space more the doses of belantamab, and with this, maybe the keratopathy will reduce and the management will be easy if we are able to maintain, of course, the efficacy. So I think that there is also a, a space. And well, just before finishing this uh, excellent round table, uh, just a comment about the quality of life of the patients. I am also positively surprised because the CAR T cell clinical trials reported the data 
inequality of life. And in BB2121, as well as Thiel Tassel, reported the quality of life for patients with heavily pretreated myeloma patients comparable to the normal population. I think that we've never seen a similar situation in relapsed and refractory myeloma patients. I don't know if you want to comment something about this. And this is something that we see in the clinic after CAR-Ts and even after T-cell engagers. Is the same for you? Yeah, I think the the data from the BB2121 had shown already primary quality of life domains to be improved. And now with the secondary domains of life, like social functioning, um, emotional functioning, all of these, they started out lower than the general population, but actually had significant improvement. And we saw that. We saw that for the patients who had CAR-T and had a good response. Those people who did, didn't have to come back for chemo. And so that was a good thing. I suspect it's going to be similar for the T-cell engagers uh, because I've noticed also that the patients have a pretty good quality of life thereafter. Uh, so I think this is going to help us to choose one or the other, or at least justify that it's worth doing these, these very complicated or, or maybe expensive treatments because they do change quality of life for the patients. Yeah, the and I think that this will help us uh, also to the authorities and even to the payers uh, to approve these drugs because uh, there is a clear impact in the quality of life of the patients. And uh, well, thank you very much. I think that this uh, brings up to the end of this roundtable discussion. Thank you very much for joining me today, this meeting, and uh, looking forward to seeing you in the near future in another virtual meetings and maybe in uh, live meetings very soon. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you so much, Marty. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To keep up to date with the latest Hemonc news, including cutting-edge content straight from ASH 2020, visit vjhemonc.com. Find us on Twitter at vjhemonc and get involved with the conversation on our page. See you next time.